0: After three years in exile, Absalom commands Joab to broker his return to the kingdom. This is the thirtieth sermon in the series "Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory" and exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading coming from Second Samuel and chapter fourteen as we pick up the narrative in verse twenty-one, verse twenty-one through the end of the chapter thirty-three, Second Samuel chapter fourteen twenty-one through thirty-three. Beloved of the Lord. This is the word of God unto us this morning. And the king said unto Joab, Behold now, I have done this thing. Go therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today thy servant knoweth that I have found grace in thy sight, my lord, O king, and that the king hath fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him turn to his own house, and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. But in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he pulled his head, for it was at every year's end that he pulled it, because the hair was very heavy on him, therefore he pulled it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. And unto Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of fair countenance. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, He would not come. Therefore he said unto his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go, and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house, and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither that I may send thee to the king to say, Wherefore am I come from Gesher? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Job came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Paul writing to Timothy, Second Timothy, Second Timothy, and chapter 3, the first five verses by the same Spirit, Second Timothy chapter three one through five. The Apostle Paul says this: This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower of thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by His holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Absalom has now been away for three years out of his father's favor, and yet the king's heart was still toward his beloved son. Historically, we can see the intimate connection of a father to his son, even in the face of a grievous crime within the family structure, and this is entirely natural. And no one should really at this point, for this reason, fault David for his paternal love for Absalom. Now, to be sure, from the scriptures, Absalom was something to behold. If you remember, he was loved by the people. And here, in this reading of the Old Testament, he was loved by the people because he was something else. He was a beautiful individual. And the people loved him for his beauty. And as we had determined last time, very carnal reasoning for loving the man. And yet, Israel loved Absalom. Nevertheless, Absalom was discomforted by the breach that he and his father had between them. David also was longing for his own son. And while David wanted to mend that chasm, he was unable to do so entirely. Now, if there's any gospel allusion to this situation, we might conclude a number of possibilities. Now, remember, we have before us a historical narrative. This is what happened. We can learn much from the historical narrative. But where is some of the types and figures? Where is the gospel? Is there the gospel? This is, of course, all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to begin to dig. We have to begin to look very carefully to see, are there any possibilities here in this narrative where we might see some of the gospel allusions to this situation? Well, if, and I say if, Absalom is a figure of rebellion, which we know he is. He is then, therefore, a figure of Adam. And we can see the relationship between God and, and Adam, even as we see the relationship between David and his son Absalom. As Absalom was banished, so was Adam banished from the Garden of Eden. And for Absalom, he was banished from the kingdom of God, even as, as Adam was banished from Eden, which was a type of the kingdom of God. And we see that God was not well pleased with Adam since he had rebelled, and yet he still made a way for him to be reconciled. However, in another sense, Absalom might even thinly, and I emphasize to you, thinly reflect certain aspects of Christ. I say this only because of the attention given to the three years that Absalom was in exile and how it might reflect the three days and three nights that Christ was in exile bearing the wrath of God as he went to the cross for the sins of his people. And remember the words of the Savior, Why hast thou forsaken me? Or perhaps, Why hast thou sent me into exile? And yet, at the very same time, during Christ's atoning exile, the heart of God was favorable toward him, even as David's heart was favorable toward Absalom. Because That was his son. And so once again, we see some intimate connections between the first Adam and the last Adam. But for now, in this narrative, we see David longing for Absalom, his son's return. And so perceiving this, Joab being very astute, he takes matters into his own hands to move the king into allowing Absalom at least to return to the kingdom. And he does so by craftily inventing a deception. He brings the woman from Tekoa to deceive the king, procuring his desired results. However, once Absalom returns, the king says, okay, I have to, I'm, I'm forced, I have to bring Absalom back to the kingdom. But when he does return, David says something very curious. He says, he can come back to the kingdom, but I refuse to see his face. And for two whole years, they did not see one another. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Verse 28. Now, upon his return to Jerusalem, many things happen within that two years. He's married. He has three sons and he has one daughter who he names Tamar in honor and remembrance of his sister Tamar. We see this in verse 27. And unto Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of a fair countenance. She was a beautiful woman. She had a beautiful father. Obviously, the mother was beautiful. He was bringing forth beautiful children. She was a fair woman, a fair countenance. And this is telling because Absalom is determined to keep his sister's situation and her honor alive, even though it may seem as if all had been forgotten. He would not have David forget this, so David's granddaughter now is named Tamar. Absalom was determined not to forget what had happened, and by naming David's granddaughter after Tamar, he would keep her memory alive, in David's mind especially. Now his strategy is noteworthy. Absalom's strategy is very cunning, very noteworthy, because in his mind, David failed to exact the proper justice upon Amnon in behalf of Tamar. If Tamar's honor had been upheld and her virtue vindicated, Absalom would not have felt compelled to come to Tamar's defense in slaying his brother Amnon. The fact that David refused to judge righteously forced Absalom's hand, and Absalom perhaps blamed David for that. Perhaps the naming of his daughter after his sister Tamar was a rub, a direct assault upon David for his judicial misstep that he made to bring the issue to trial. Remember, David didn't bring the issue to trial. But what is conspicuously evident is that neither David or Absalom show any remorse for their actions. They were both wrong in the way they dealt with the situation, as we've seen already. And yet Joab, is pushing at this point for reconciliation without any real strategy. Notice, he wants Absalom back to the kingdom, but he really doesn't have a strategy how to bring about reconciliation. How is he going to remedy what originally brought about the situation between the king and Absalom? He really didn't have a clue. But for a moment, let's return to Absalom's beauty, because this is a very interesting statement. He was beautiful. God is careful to highlight this most important detail concerning the king's son, Absalom. Notice verse 25. But in all Israel, think about all of Israel, in all of that realm, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom because of his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Now think about that description. What an incredible testimony that God has given to this man, Absalom, from the sole of his foot even to the crown of his head, not a blemish in him. Now that is one of the reasons this description of Absalom, this description is yet another hint as to who Absalom represents. Absalom is commended for his beauty. Now, at first blush, of course, as I said before, one might think, well, this is it's got to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it might be a thin, thinly veiled description of Christ because we see the connection between the first Adam and the last Adam. And yet, while that fact might be true, we must remember the intimacy between the first Adam and the last Adam. Note the description of Adam, while in the garden before his fall as a beautiful creature with no blemish in Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning in verse 15. This is God speaking about Adam before the fall, not about the devil, not about Satan. This is about a man created in the image of God from the dust of the earth without blemish, without sin. Did he have the... Ability to sin? Well, we know for a fact that he did. But at this point, he's in the Garden of Eden. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created, till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, because that's where Eden was. Eden was on the mountain of God. And I will destroy the O covering cherub. Now, the covering cherub is a phrase which speaks of that man which was protecting the garden. And if you remember, and this is where some people say, well, that's got to be Satan falling from God's grace. Well, no, because why would the cherubim be embossed on all of the curtains of the tabernacle in the wilderness if it was a picture of the devil? Notice, from the midst of the stones of fire, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. Therefore, I will cast thee to the ground, I will lay thee before kings, that they may behold thee. This is speaking of Adam. And as we shall see, Absalom, like Adam, was lifted up because of his beauty. He became proud and lifted up as a result of the fact that he was so beautiful from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, which resulted in his desire to be king in the same way as Adam desired to be his God. Verse 26 of 2 Samuel then records a very strange practice. And when he pulled his head, when he shaved his head, which is also very significant because that would shame the man. It wasn't Of course, that would be a shaving, like in the shaving of a woman's hair. We'll look at that in a moment. When he pulled his head, for it was at every year's end that he pulled it, because the hair was very heavy on him, therefore he pulled it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. Now, that was his covering because hair as a head covering is a symbol of, of humility and submission. It refers to covenant headship. Paul tells the church at Corinth that the hair of a woman signifies her submission under her husband's covenant headship. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. This statement also seems to indicate that artificial head coverings are not actually mandatory for women in worship since Paul says their hair is the covering. Now, while it was perfectly permissible for a man to have long hair after taking a Nazarite vow during times of apostasy and times of war, as in the case of Samson, Solomon, and John the Baptist, we don't read anywhere that Absalom took such a vow. In fact, unless a man was a Nazarite, he would not have long hair. Why would Absalom men have long hair? Absalom, on the other hand, not only had long hair, but it was so long that it weighed 200 shekels of silver. The equivalent of 200 shekels of silver. What was meant as a badge of honor for women, having long hair, was a shameful disgrace for a man unless he had taken a Nazarite vow. But we don't read it anywhere that Absalom has taken the vow. Oh, he was declaring warfare, all right. He was declaring war against the king, the legitimate authority of the throne. But he was no Nazarite. And Paul makes this perfectly clear. In verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says this, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. Now, I must go down a rabbit hole just for a minute. A little rabbit trail. Because I just think that digging deeply and and asking questions and trying to come up with some some answers is, is quite important when we study the scripture. What about Adam? Was Adam, or could Adam, have been considered a Nazarite priest? I only say this because he was told very clearly, take dominion and subdue. That's the language of conflict. What are you taking dominion over? What are you trying to subdue? That's the language of conflict. And so the question might be asked, was Adam, while in the garden, even while pristine and holy, was Adam at war? Was there any kind of threat of war in the garden? Not war, but the threat of war? Well, certainly not war in the garden against anything in the garden. But was not his war internal? Was he not being told to be at war against the tendencies to be tempted or to tempt or to fall? Because I believe his war was internal against his own flesh, which was his temptation. Otherwise, he would not have rebelled. If he was, and I say if he was indeed a Nazarite priest, would he not have long hair? Well, this is just all speculation, of course, but certainly something to be considered. Furthermore, if he was to be in complete submission before God, which is what he was called to do, obey. The only thing you shouldn't be doing is eating up the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so you need to be in submission to my commandments. If he was to be in submission before God, would his hair not only reflect his beauty, but also his submission to God? Remember now, the Nazarite priest had to have long hair to show he was in submission to God. For the Nazarite priest, the man having long hair, would not be a shame. It would be commanded to show precisely his submission. As with Absalom's long hair, a source of his pride, would not Adam feel that sense of pride as well? Remember, Absalom had this beautiful long hair. He was very prideful. Would Adam having such a beautiful countenance, also feel a sense of pride? Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And did not Adam fall? And did not his pride destroy him? And I see so many parallels here. All of this, of course, once again, is speculation. Perhaps even logical if only something to be considered as a topic of curiosity and discussion. But to be sure, Absalom's hair was his pride. It was his pride and joy. It reflected his beauty, and everybody loved him for it. But it represented more than that. In Absalom's case, as possibly in Adam's case as well, his hair seems to signal a rebellious spirit. It may also have signaled hypocrisy, Because he was not in submission to God, nor into submission to the king, his father, the legitimate holder of the throne. On the outside, Absalom's hair was touted as his submission before God, under God's headship. And yet, that would only be true if it was the hair of a woman. A man was not to have long hair. It almost seems as if Absalom was saying, look at me. Look at how long my hair is. Look at how beautiful I am. Does this not show my submissiveness? Am I not a Nazarite priest without taking the vow? Am I not to be the glorious son of the Most High? Does not this reflect my holiness, my sincerity, and my glory before God and the King? You see, Absalom thought that he should have the throne, not his father. Now the reality was quite the opposite. He was not in submission. Absalom's hair was simply an outward show, not of his submission, but rather of his rebellion and his shame, much like Adam and much like Israel in their rebellion as well. Outwardly he looked beautiful. Outwardly he looked submissive. But inwardly, in reality, which where it counts, inwardly in the heart, he was a hypocrite. He was a rebel. He had a form of godliness. Devoid totally of the power thereof. And this is how Ezekiel describes Adam. that was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created, till iniquity was found in thee. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. And so, after two years in Jerusalem, Absalom was still not summoned to the king's court. We see this in verse 28. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Now, of course, he was waiting for an audience. That's obvious. Waiting to have an audience with the king. Finally, after two years, thought, okay, it's enough already. I want to see the king. So he sends for Joab, who had originally brokered his return. But why? See, now we have to ask, why did Absalom want to see the king? Was there a reason? Was there a a, a motive? Well, certainly this was not that he might find favor with the king. He was angry with the king. He didn't look for pardon of any sort. He was still bitter over David's lack of judgment in the case of Tamar. He thought he was better than David in judging Israel because he believed David's judgment was not right, which led him to take matters in his own hands. Having lost all confidence in his father, lost confidence in the king, lost confidence in the king that was a judge, Absalom thought it best if he resume his position before the king so that so that he can assume the position of king this is very calculated he wants to see the king you see if he gets right with the king or if it seems as if he's right with the king the people would then believe that he and the king were on friendly terms and that he of course as you know was slotted into the throne next Absalom wanted to be the king in the very same way that Adam wanted to be God. And the only way that he could gain a foothold in the nation of Israel was if he could find his way into the good graces of David and back into the court of the king. He was posturing. In this way, the people might be persuaded that Absalom spoke as the voice of the king. Being brought into the king's court would act as an endorsement from the king. And the people would then look to Absalom rather than David. This was a calculated move. This was a political move by Absalom's part. A brilliant move. Since he gave Absalom political capital so that he could move in and take over the kingdom. Absalom was positioning himself in such a way as to be in a better political position to wage a campaign against the king in a conspiracy way so that he might become king. He knew he needed a visible presence in the court so that when he made his move against David, the people might recognize him as a legitimate ruler who had been in the king's court. After all, he was next in line to be the king. So if Absalom waged his campaign from a place of exile, his chances would be almost nil. But wage a campaign from the court of the king, now that's a totally different story. Now in light of this, Anyone anyway, that still believes that the Bible does not discuss politics hasn't read the scriptures well enough with a critical eye. And so Absalom twice sends for Joab to make the necessary preparations for him to see the king. Of course, Joab broke the first initiation. Why not get me to see the king in his court? But Joab ignores Absalom on two distinct occasions by two distinct requests. Therefore, verse 29, Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, Joab would not come. He ignored Absalom's request. Now, Joab's refusal to broker a reconciliation between the king and his son, it it seems at first blush quite odd. Why wouldn't Joab want Absalom to be reconciled to the king? After all, he was the one who lobbied the king through deception, to take Absalom back and do his good graces? Why would he now just blow the guy off? Well, I believe there's a number of possibilities. Firstly, perhaps knowing that there was still things that had to be resolved between David and Absalom, Job may have thought simply the timing wasn't right. Now, now that doesn't, however, take into the fact that Job didn't even answer Absalom. Why wouldn't he even answer him? I don't, I don't know why he didn't even answer He just ignored him. Because if he wanted Absalom to wait, maybe he should have told him, you have to wait. Timing's not right. But that brings us to a second possibility. Joab might have been privy to the king's hesitation for a meeting and thought it best not to push any reconciliation between the two. And in that way, the timing wasn't right again. But why not tell Absalom? Thirdly, I actually think that Joab may have gotten wind of Absalom's ultimate plan to take the kingdom for himself. He obviously knew that Absalom viewed the king's judicial integrity with disdain and may have thought that he could rectify it by usurping the throne. That meant that if Absalom actually took the kingdom by revolt, it would be treason and as David's war chief, Joab would be put in a very compromising position and he may not be willing to assist Absalom. Job may have even been concerned that if Absalom was successful in taking the kingdom, he might retire Joab or even assassinate Joab from being Israel's war chief and choose another to take his place. So you see, once again, Joab is all about Joab. And since it was obvious that Absalom thought that he was wiser than his father, and Joab may have been concerned about that ambition as well. In this way, again, Absalom is a lot like Adam, thinking that he could discern between good and evil, even better than the king. And we know this for a fact. Since the first thing Absalom does after his audience with the king is to set himself up as a judicial counselor and a judge for the people. He's going to be the judge now. Not David. Come to me. Don't go to my father. I know better. Come to me. Now, possibly perceiving this was Absalom's plan, Joab twice ignores the summons that Absalom gives him. But, Ambitious Absalom, that will never do. I am the king's son. I am slaughtered for the throne. You are a simple war chief. You will bow to my command. But he needed Joab. Absalom needed Joab to broker an audience with the king. He just couldn't walk in there. There was no way that he could simply waltz into Jerusalem without an invitation from the king on his own in hope of any reconciliation. He needed Joab, and he would have Joab bow to his demands one way or another. So taking a playbook out of the book of the Judges, out of the history of the Judges, Absalom uses Samson's strategy to get the war chief's undivided attention. And what he does is he sets Joab's barley field on fire. Verse 30. Therefore, he... Absalom said unto his servants, See, Job's field is near mine. It's very important that the fields butted against each other. You got Joab's field, you got Absalom's field. You see, Job's field, the barley field, is near mine. And he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And that's what they did. Absalom commanded, the servants obeyed. Now, That would get anybody's attention. Now, Absalom has Joab's attention. Threaten a man's livelihood, and you control the man. That's the tool. Threaten a man's economics, and you control the man. Destroy a man's means of survival, and he will bow to whatever you dictate. And this is the strategy of a tyrant. The strategy of a tyrannical usurper. The difference between what Samson did and what Absalom did is that Samson sought dominion over God's enemies while Absalom sought dominion over a man after God's own heart, David. Same strategy, different motive. If we go back to the idea that Absalom is a typification of Adam representing unregenerate man or even apostate Israel or even the state, the tyrannical state we can see how the unregenerate act tyrannically in order to usurp the legitimate kingship of Christ by injecting themselves into the kingship, thinking that they know better than God. What is interesting about the way the scripture describes Absalom's action is the use of the word barley. Remember, God is very precise. It wasn't just a field, it was a barley field. According to Hebrew scholar Rev. V. Phillips Long, the word used here in the Hebrew... For barley implies that it was the hairiest of grains. If you look at a piece of barley, it looks like it's very hairy. This may be a play on words pointing back to Absalom's hair, which was a source of his pride and the reason why he thought he should be the king. Absalom might be implying that if he is refused an audience with the king, then all of his beauty will go to waste and be burned up as Joab's barley field. You see what a prideful man he is. I am so beautiful... If you don't give me an audience with the king, if I don't become the king, my beauty will go to waste just like that hairy barley field if it's burned up. What further proof of Absalom's desperation is Joab's field was right next to Absalom's. What a threat that would have been. You're burning the field that's next to your field. The burning of Joab's field could have threatened Absalom's as well. Yet he was willing, this is the desperation, yet he was willing to risk everything for an audience with the king. That's how desperate this man is. Prideful ambition. So Absalom, by burning the field, finally gets Joab's attention. Who would not give attention to that? Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? Now note his answer. Verse 32 and following. And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king, to say, Wherefore? This is what he wanted Job to say to the king. Why have I come from geisha What? To be still in exile in the kingdom and not in the king's court as the son of the king? Why have I even come here? It had been good for me to have been still in geisha. Now therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. Absalom's answer to Joab indicts him for his actions of initially bringing back Absalom. In other words, if there was no other reason for Absalom to return just to remain in limbo, then he should have stayed in Geisha. So obviously, Absalom is frustrated, so he tells Joab that if the king so chooses to put him on trial for his murder of Amnon, let it be done. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. Another bold statement. He committed murder. He committed an assassination, premeditated. After years, after two years, B. Philip Long observes this. He says, Absalom, in effect, is asking that his actions be put on trial, which by implication, and this is important, which by implication suggests that David's two should come under scrutiny. That was the motive. He wanted David's actions, not taking action, against Tamar's rape and violation, to come under scrutiny as well. This entire situation has been a dark cloud hanging over the entire kingdom, which directly affected both David and Absalom deeply. So at this point, Absalom simply wants to know, where do I stand? Where do I stand in this situation? He wants his actions to be put on trial to see if he should die or live or or maybe even vindicated by the king. This too was a calculated maneuver. He waited years before demanding an audience with the king. And I believe it was so that he might gain favor with the people, which would put great pressure on David when Absalom finally came to trial to put him to death. The people love me. You're going to kill me? I'm the heir to the throne. You're going to kill me? You're the one that moved me to assassinate Amnon, and you're going to kill me? Think of the hubris. Think of the boldness. The craftiness. The, the intelligence of such a crafty man. Perhaps Absalom thought, if my father couldn't, could not condemn his son Amnon, For such a terrible act of unprovoked violence and wickedness, surely he could not judge me, his son next in line for the throne, for executing a just penalty on Amnon, which it was not, in the wake of the king's inability to judge rightly. Absalom thought that he had positioned himself securely within the nation of Israel and had David in a very difficult position. And yet, Amnon's assault on Tamar was not a capital crime. It didn't deserve the death penalty as we saw. Absalom thought that his murder was justified, but it was not. But in his pride, in his blindness, in his passion, he thought that he should be vindicated. Absalom's request for an audience with the king placed Joab in a very awkward position. Nevertheless, he makes the necessary arrangements for Absalom and David to meet. Verse 33. So Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Okay, so now, once in the court of the king, there's no mention of judgment, there's no mention of vindication, there's no mention of even a discussion of what happened. All we know from the scripture is that when Absalom came before the king, he bows down on the floor, on his face. He shows respect, even though in his heart, he is going to rebel. Now, what we don't see here It's not so much what we do see. It's really what is missing. What is missing? Remember, David was longing for his son. We don't read anywhere that David ran to him in in a paternal embrace. We don't read any words spoken as it was in the parable of the prodigal son. We don't see anything like that. What we see is perhaps a cold reunion of two opposite parties Forced to reconcile, seemingly against their will, but needful for the necessary optics. And all we are told is that David kisses his son. And that was an act of reconciliation. That was the least that David could do. He had to do at least that. But was it simply an act for the media? Was it simply so that Israel could see, okay, we're kissing, we're making up. little kumbaya moment here. Without real passion without real intimacy. So, my question is, was this something that protocol dictated and nothing more? Perhaps it was. But whatever the case, that was all Absalom needed. He needed the reconciliation of the king. Now, being reconciled to his father, whether in optics or reality, he can move ahead with his plan to overthrow the kingdom as he always had planned and establish the throne for himself we will examine that next when we consider absalom's quest for rebellion as we continue in the second book of samuel and this we shall do god helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace amen